Today's Trinity Sunday. Some of you might be anticipating a theology lecture today. That is not what's going to happen. That's not where we're headed. So today's not going to be about proving some doctrine. It's not going to be about talking about the life and communion of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, at least not in a direct way. I'd rather explore that than explain it or defend it. So hopefully I'll do more showing than telling today. So we're going to come at this Trinitarian reality today through the back door, and we're going to do it via a very closely related doctrine that we just heard about called the Imago Dei, being made in the image of God. Given what's happening in our country, I can't think of a better way to spend our time today than to talk about what it means to be made in the image of God. And we're going to focus specifically on Genesis 1, 26 through 31. That's where we spend all our time. So being made in God's image obviously means we're made in the image of a Trinitarian God. So I'm just going to assume that you understand that and, and, and can go with me on that. So what I mean by we're going to come at this through the back door is, is by exploring who God made us to be, we're going to also be learning about him and whose image we're made. I really think uh, and believe with everything uh, that I am that there's, there's some very real implications for all of human life and the created order for if we really dig into this. So we start at the beginning. Fizz read the very beginnings of the human story. And we have our first, in, in, in engaging Genesis 1, we get our first overt encounter with this three-person God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you'll notice in the beginning, we don't know a whole lot about God based off what he says. He doesn't say much in the first two chapters of Genesis, um, other than to command life into existence and to affirm it as, this is good, this is good. Most of what we learn and glean about God in Genesis 1 and 2 is based off his actions. What does God do? So here's some of the first things that we learn of God in these first few chapters of Genesis. We see someone of immense intention and purpose. We see someone of inexhaustible and just supreme creativity. We see someone who's an architect, an orchestrator, an artist. We see someone who is all-powerful. We see someone who seeks to bless to call things good, to create and bless. We see someone who provides. We see someone whose very words create worlds. It's an amazing thing. We see someone who brings about life, who brings order from chaos. There's a movement there that you see. And finally, we see someone who creates us, humankind, as the very pinnacle of his creative prowess. And then invites us to be his divine stewards and vice regents in the world that he creates. Those actions already tell us an awful lot about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So moving to verse 26 and 27. Let us make man, let us make humankind in our image and after our likeness. Now we're privileged to eavesdrop on this internal conversation in the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian conversation. Some people speculate uh, this is, might be God conversing with the heavenly host as well. You know, regardless, I'm not gonna hang my head on that. I think the meaning's the same. Human beings are to be made in the divine image. This was an intentional decision, uh, not happenstance. So we are to be unique amongst the created order. And creation has, if you watch it, this intentional order and this unfolding sequence. It's a glorious and rising symphony that reaches a crescendo, which is marked by two words that God says. It's very good. That's going to be very important in a moment. Those words are only reserved for once human beings are part of the equation. Very good. 
They're what God, God utters when he creates us. So we're much loved and we're much trusted. That's where the story begins. So we are to be and are the crowning achievement of God's creation, a living icon of his love. God marks us with his favor by bestowing a measure of his glory unto us. Okay. So God didn't create the world. You got to get this part out of your head. God didn't, God didn't create us in the world because he needed someone around because he was lonely. That's not why. God created us because he, by his very nature, is love, which means his nature is to give of himself. That is what God does. That's why he created us. So he creates the world with humans as the pinnacle. And that brings us forward to the next part. Let us create man, let us create humankind in our image after our likeness. So let's go ahead and say very clear, very clear. Every human being, every human being, Every human being is made in the image of God, of a Trinitarian God. Yes, that's this doctrine I talked about, the Imago Dei. Now, this has been discussed for centuries. It's a really rich theme. It's beautiful. We're not going to be able to touch on all of it, obviously. But let me say this. I think we're made in the image of God in three basic ways. Some are explicit in this passage. Some are implicit. But I think if you look at all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, it bears it out. So I think there are three ways in which we are made in the image of God, every single human being. First way is we are called to exercise dominion. I want to talk about that. Um, God exercises his sovereignty. We see him operate out of his authority over all creation throughout scripture and beyond. And so God made us to bear his glory within the created order in a similar but lesser fashion. So it's, it's that idea. Think of Jesus's parables. He's the owner. We're the steward. Okay. So it's that idea. We're his vice regent. So this should sound familiar to you, but to be more specific about uh, dominion, this way we're made in the image of God. Um, let me look at 126 and following. So God begins by blessing Adam and Eve, both of them, and he charges them. And I'm going to sum it up. Um, and again, not be able to fully explain it. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue and to rule. That's their call. So they're both charged with this task of ruling the kingdom. Uh, I think of that line, I think it's from Aslan in Narnia, where he says, um, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, right? They're of that created order. So both men and women are tasked with ruling, okay? With exercising dominion. And they're both tasked, I would say, with filling the world with goodness. If you'll see this pattern that God establishes in Genesis, what he does is it's sort of like he creates an empty space and then he fills it. So there's this creation of space and filling it with life. A sky is meant to have stars. Oceans are meant to teem with living things. Sabbaths are meant to be filled with rest. So Adam and Eve are to mimic the same life-giving pattern and to exercise dominion. Now, they do that by listening to God, being obedient um, to what he said. Uh, they do that by being in communion and relationship with God. Uh, and this enables them to be wise stewards, to govern wisely. Um, and this involves all of what they do. Now, at this point in the story, this is amazing. It's incredible. This prospect is, I mean, it just it's incredible. It's amazing. So dominion, that's what I want you to have. First way we're made in the image of God to exercise dominion. So there's that. Moving to Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, things are getting more specific now. 
The second way that we're made in the image of God is we have personhood. We have personhood, right? We're not inanimate objects. We're not machines. I think this plays out in a couple ways. There's individuality, right? We all have our passions. We have our uh, a will. We have creativity. We have volition. We have intelligence. And we're unique in God's creation in that way. So you and I, every human being that ever's walked the face of the earth, ever will, is really is a true original, okay? A marvelous person that God delights in. Uh, God's workmanship, spoken of in the New Testament, where God's poem, uh, created to do good works. So one way we're a person or have personhood is we're an individual. Uh, part of that is also that we have gender, right? Male, female. We see that in the created order. So men and women are created to reflect God in unique ways. Now, much could be said about this topic. Again, it's a big topic. We can't get to all of it. But as we'll see, it takes these two distinct genders of male and female within the created order to more fully and most fully reflect God's glory. So male and female, it's consistent with the Genesis narrative of these polar opposites being perfect complements. Human, but different. Okay, so we're made in the image of God in that we have personhood. We have individuality and we have gender. Okay, that's the second way. Third way we're made in the image of God. We have relationality. We are relational creatures. So uh, to be made in God's image means more than uh, just being an individual male, individual female. God's creative work is only complete once there's Adam and Eve. And what I want to, I want to boil that down to its basic essence, the first human community. Once Eve comes to the picture, now we have human community. Now, God's glory is further revealed in their beautiful coming together in the one flesh mystery, which literally births life. But the point here is that the communion and community of Adam and Eve is a relational one. Okay, so we're made in the image of God because we're relational creatures. That's what it means to be made in God's image. Think of God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's a relationship. That's a created relationship. That's not a created, huh, back up. That's a relationship between three separate but equal, but united beings. So we're relational. We're designed for connection. We're designed to have human connection. And obviously the pandemic has really uh, worked against us in that way, right? It's been very hard to connect. This is not as good as sitting face to face. It's just not. It's provision, but it's not a substitute. We all know that. So even before, observe with me here, and I'm going to play with this relational nature of who we are. Even before sin enters the picture, we were never meant to be self-sufficient in the strictest sense. We were never meant to be that. Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. This is Eve. Now, helper is a strong word, stronger than many know. It's a word used of God, so it's not just, oh, Eve, good for you. Good hustle. You can be his helpmeet, and that's a lesser role. No, it's, it's equal, and it's strong. So before the fall in Genesis 3, here's what I want us to get from this. Uh, there is perfect equality between Adam and Eve. They're both given the same call and task, so they're going to work it out differently. So there's no will to power. There's no subjugation of women. There's no uh, domination of anybody here. So that call to subdue, to rule, to be fruitful, to multiply, it's given to both Adam and Eve, equal but different. This is the way it was supposed to be. They're polar opposites but perfectly complementary. 
They're in perfect harmony with the other polarities that we see God use in Genesis, earth and sky, sea and land, night and day. So, as I just said, God's relational in his being. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So are we. So that's why we can say things like God is love, because love involves necessarily more than one person. It involves giving yourself to someone on behalf of someone else. We were designed out of that love, and we're bent, meant to be in relationship with each other horizontally and with God vertically. So there's a couple of errors that we see here that I think uh, are easy to see in our own culture. Uh, one of them is just that, that idea of just Jesus and me, just Jesus and me. And I think, honestly, with America's stress on individualism and our love of that, uh, I think this one is particularly a problem for us. But just Jesus and me it isn't biblical, and it never has been, right? Even monks and nuns who live away in the cloister, even they live in community, right? So community and relationships shape us. We're in the live, the church is sort of like the living lab where we live out this call, the great commandment and the great commission together. We do that. If not, I don't know why Paul and so many others in the epistles waste all this time talking about how we're to relate to one another. Okay. So just Jesus and me, it's not biblical. It never has been. The other side of the fence, it's also not biblical to live out our lives depending on or demanding that human relationships completely fulfill us. Okay? That's sort of putting relationships in, in an idolatrous position in a sense. That's sort of living, I mean, things like codependency come from that. We're to be interdependent, certainly, but we're ultimately to lean upon God. So what I want you to hear in this for relationality, both of those extremes, whether it's isolation, individualism, or sort of this relational addiction, they both come from the brokenness of sin. And they're not what we see in scripture. For those of you who are like, you know, maybe you don't like me speaking to this relationality and this relationship stuff and don't really buy it. Let me give you some examples here. So think of the studies that have done, been done with newborns and the importance of touch in the first few months of a, of a person's life. That human connection with the mother and or the father so important. It's so important and vital that in fact, a child in the early stages can die without that connection, okay? Or have severe attachment issues later in life. That's one example. Another one, uh, again, in the negative realm, there's a common denominator in all, almost all suicide statistics, and it tends to be extreme loneliness or isolation, okay? A lack of connection to people, or the world that they live in. There's an acute estrangement that breeds a culture of death, okay? Here's a good example. I'm probably ready for that now. Ever been around um, a couple or family or church community who loves each other and who follows Jesus with their whole hearts, all of who they are? That is a very powerful thing. It's a very intriguing thing. That's a very alluring thing because you get around those folks and they literally exude a redemptive and life-giving uh, presence that affects those around them. They, they change the spiritual um, barometer of what's going on. This is the reality, the spiritual Christian reality of love. It's what it is. And the promise that Christian community holds out, hopefully. Uh, one of Augustine's favorite notions of the Trinity revolved around this idea of the Holy Spirit as this love that flowed back and forth eternally between the Father and the Son. 
So maybe it's what I'm describing is something like that, the spirit of love that you come to or sense in a Christian community. So relation, we're still on the relational piece of being made in the image of God, and I'll, I'll end here on this piece. We literally can't survive, much less thrive, without human connection. We can't. No man is an island, right? We are hardwired and we are relational to our core. Only once there's human community, Adam and Eve, only once that happens and they're in communion with God, does God say those two very important words at the end of Genesis 1. It's very good. Only then, only then do we get very good. So is it any surprise that those three themes where we're made in God's image, dominion, personhood, relationality, is it any wonder that those are precisely the places the world, the flesh, and the devil target and attack? I don't think so. Not surprising. Those three areas, they're marred by sin. They're distorted by the world and the culture, and they're preyed upon by the accuser. Now, I don't think I need to get an amen after that. I think you'll believe that, but let me tease those out a little bit more. After the fall, what happens to the godly cult of dominion? Well, it turns into domination. That's what happens. Uh, we see uh, grasping for power. We see violence and oppression. We see war. We see the cry of mine. That's the cry of ownership. That's not the cry of stewardship. We see the desecration and the misuse of creation. I can do whatever I want with the land, the sea, and the skies. I can make it a garbage heap if I want to because I'm in charge of it. I own it. No, you don't. <laughs> You're sent to steward it. So dominion devolves into whatever benefits, who's ever holding the reins, okay? So the call to exercise dominion has obviously gone terribly wrong. And we can see that, I think, very clearly in our nation at many points. Least of all, the image of a white man kneeling on a black man's neck. That's a chilling picture and a convicting picture of what living East of Eden looks like when dominion gone wrong and gone to domination. Personhood. Where are the world and the flesh of the devil work against personhood? Well, I think the sanctity of human life gets lost. Uh, the prevailing cultural views define what it means to be human uh, more than what God designed it to be. We can elevate sexuality so as to be synonymous with individuality to the point of everyone's confusion or individuality becomes um, an end in itself, right? You can be true to yourself, have your own truth, look inside yourself for the answer. You don't need anybody else. And the cult, I think, of the self is born, bred, and fed. Sadly cut off from the life-giving reality of being made in God's image. So when I think of personhood and what we've done with that since the fall, it's a little bit like trying to fly an airplane, but without ever asking the inventor, how does this thing work? Or how should I fly this thing? It's very dangerous. And then relationality, where sin, the world, flesh, and the devil, all that has marked that. Again, we don't have to look very far. That insidious cancer that we inherited from Adam and Eve spreads. Simply put, uh, we don't love. We don't love. Instead, we live out of fear. We live out of jealousy. We live out of self-protection, shame guilt, pride. So the results, unsurprisingly, things like divorce, broken families, estranged friendships, divided church communities, isolation resulting in 
health issues, death, mental illness, and yes, subjugation and injustice. I want you to see how contrary this is to the pictures we have in the New Testament of the body of Jesus and the household of God, which includes all genders, all races, incredibly and vast and diverse in terms of the people that are to be part of it and we're called into. So it's a picture of interconnection, interdependence, and it's bound together in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Not a very good picture I've just painted, but one that I think, if we're honest, we can see and certainly see in sharp contrast right now. It's a grim picture. It's a sobering picture of a beautiful story gone terribly wrong. But somehow, somehow, despite the onslaught I've just described above, and I haven't done the due diligence or justice, I've just taken one swipe at it. The image of God in every human being is never destroyed completely. Never. Broken and marred and beat up, you better believe it. But there's always a pinpoint of light shining through to remind us of our God-given dignity. So if you're a points person who's taking points, and what's the takeaway? Where are we going with this? Here's point one, and there's only two, okay? First point, in all this, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll connect this, I hope, in a way that everyone can get. First point, let's remember who our real enemy is. Can we do that? Uh, and it's not our neighbor. It's not our neighbor. It's not someone who has a different skin color. I mean, have you ever thought of the utter ridiculousness that this is about a, a, a chemical, a pigment in someone's skin. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Let's remember who the real enemy is, and it's not our neighbor. Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Folks, if we're going to wage war, let's engage the real enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil, okay? The enemy is not our neighbor. We are called to love our neighbor. The enemy is not our neighbor. So now is a fine time as any for spiritual warfare prayers. Absolutely. Now is a fine time for soul searching and for repentance. Absolutely. But let's remember who the real enemy is, and it's not our neighbor, okay? That's point number one. Number two. There is something else that goes hand in hand with battling the real enemy. And I'm going to say it's the renewed call to mission. Some of you are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hear me out, okay? This looks way different than it sounds, I think, because this is not another hollow call to Christian triumphalism and cultural imperialism. That is not what I'm talking about. We need to battle the real enemy, and we need to renew our call to mission. Mission is certainly key to the spread of the gospel, but it is more holistic than that, okay? Israel and then the church were always called to acts of mercy and justice and compassion. That has always been true. So mission has always involved proclamation and action. How those ever got separated, I will never understand, but it's not a biblical understanding. It's not just, well, I'd love to tell people like Jesus and save souls, but I don't want to do anything to actually help them. That's not biblical. I'm sorry. It's just not. So as we carry and exalt the name of Jesus wherever we go, we're also to do things like this. Stand up to oppression and injustice. We're to do that. 
We are to participate in the redemption and the restoration of all things. We are to be people who bring light into darkness, bring things that are hidden into the light. We are to use the old language of the prophets. We're to restore the years that the locusts have destroyed. We're to be about that work. We're to give voice and justice to the marginalized. Now, folks, if you read any amount of history, sadly, when it comes to racism, the church has dealt with it either poorly or very late or not at all. Okay, So clearly, we have work to do. We do. I have work to do. You have work to do. And I'm going to comment on this area of dominion, specifically where we have work to do. Though I think there's much that can be said about personhood and where we need to do work and relationships there we need to do work. There's not time for that. I would keep you here another half hour, and I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, but I do want you to reflect on those things. What does it mean to exercise dominion in a biblical, redemptive way? Well, let me give you some thoughts on that. If we believe in the sanctity of all human life, if Christians, if we affirm that, the Imago Dei, if we really affirm that, then our call to exercise godly dominion couldn't be more clear. I mean, there are so many areas that we can participate and join the fight on. Uh, sex trade and sex trafficking, that's one area where we can stand for the dignity of human beings and fight. On behalf of the least of these in our society, now, that might mean the poor, that might mean the hungry, that might mean the mentally ill, that might mean the elderly, that might mean people who are immigrants. The list is long. Obviously, another thing, fighting for racial equality or fighting for gender equality. Fighting for the unborn is certainly a belief in the sanctity of human life. That's just a few. And in some cases, it is safeguarding the vulnerable. We need to be willing to step in and take some hits on others' behalf. I mean, guys, that's the nature of love. That's what it means to sacrifice on behalf of other people and put them before yourself and champion their dignity when no one is. So do we need to be a human shield in some level? Yeah, I think we do. I really do. So where can we step in? Where can we step up? So if we believe in the psyche of human life, we got plenty of areas that we can step in and get to work. So my point here, every person, every person, every human being has been given this call to exercise dominion. Okay. We have a field to cultivate. We have a sphere of influence. Every single one of us has that. The vast majority of us have more than our fair share of that, sometimes to the detriment of others. So the question is, and this is an individual question and a corporate question, what will you do with the dominion and the authority you have? What will you do with it? I have the same question for our church. What will we do with our dominion and our authority that we have? Will we hoard it and protect it? Will we circle the wagons and, and kind of cry mine? Be, you know, Christian protectionists? Or will we love and will we serve with what we have? Maybe another way to look at it too is will we share? You know what I mean? Will we just share? Will we give away some of the power and authority that we have for the good of others? Will we do that? Will we elevate others in the process or just keep it to ourselves? Biblical authority, what we see is always restorative and redemptive. Okay? This is about holding our position. It's not about that. Moving to close. 
Okay, and I know it's been a little longer than normal. Thank you for hanging with me, but I just feel like this was important. And again, much more could be said, but I didn't want to waste the opportunity. Winston Churchill said this, never let a good crisis go to waste. Never let a good crisis go to waste. That will preach. Uh, sometimes God ch changes us or gets us moving in the right direction through disruption. He throws an ice bath on us, right? He lets us go through crisis. This is how the early church spread. This is how they were driven out of Jerusalem by, on one level, you could say it was just circumstances. God used those circumstances to get his church moving and to spread the gospel. Now, while God does sometimes speak gently to us and quietly, softly, because he does, there's other times he turns over the tables in our lives to wake us to tell us to arise and to get moving. I really believe that is some of what God is up to in our congregation and in other churches that I see around. So never let a good crisis go to waste. Let's not let this go to waste. Let's put this to good use. Let's do the soul searching and the hard work. I'm gonna let John Dunn pray for us. These are words from Holy Sonnet number 14. And I want you to listen to Again, this is not necessarily the gentle and quiet and soft God. This is the God who shakes us up, okay, to get us moving in the right direction. So just a few lines from John Donne, and then we'll give an amen. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock. Breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand. Overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me, make us new. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.